Mm-hmm. We, yeah. And, go ahead. And she was hoping to be here this morning to, yeah. to awaken with uh, a sore throat uh, and a lot of stress bleeding on Saturday. She will be sometime in and out. And she's checking out an ex parte grant. <coughs> Of which Rona is one of them. So we'll um, we'll speak um, maybe for a minute after class today. I can't stay, but we can speak for a minute after class. Next week is the early morning precepts morning, so the yoga won't happen. But okay, we're going to get to talk right now about the week after that. Maybe we we'll do all this public business first. Um, well, the sleepover. <laughs> what day? Or I, actually, I had a I had a new idea, not a better idea, just a new idea, Barbara. As we said, uh, what morning were you going to play, Edie? On the nineteenth. On the nineteenth. We are now elaborating that solstice plan. So, uh, if you weren't here this morning, the ele- most recent elaboration began this morning. So this is what is currently the elaborated plan, not yet made final since the program committee, Spirit Rock, is meeting later this week, and they have to say it's okay. So pending, finding out for sure that it's okay, which we'll know next week, and which will be on the page. Who does the page in the news for the Wednesday morning on the email? Ah, could you be in charge of, okay. Here was the plan that we would, we were going to meet early that morning, or regularly that morning. Edie was going to play um, all her wonderful instruments, and I was going to make some kind of a teaching about the comings and goings of things in life, uh, passages and new beginnings to celebrate the turning of the planet again towards more of daylight. and we began to think about coming the night before and having a uh, sleepover. But the and, not but, and the, what, Liz? No good? Great. <laughs> <laughs> so the more I began to think about what we might do on that sleepover, the more I was taking away the time we might sleep and the more the emphasis was on over but not sleep. <laughs> because I, th- I began to think we'd come, say, at 8 the night before, and I would do some Dharma talk about what do you do in the middle of the winter of your heart. Um, someone once wrote a book called The Winter Name of God, a very important book in my own um, development. I read it about 30 years ago. I might bring it and read a piece to me. I can remember passages by heart. The Winter Name of God. Um, it was actually James Carroll who wrote it, who then became the novelist, James Carroll. He wrote it when he was a uh, Paulist priest. Beautiful little book. So I thought I'd talk a little bit. I'd do a teaching the night before at 8 or 8.30. 
And then we thought we'd sit, we'd walk, and we'd sit, and we'd walk, and maybe sit, sleep, maybe sleep. I'm, <laughs> I'm using up the time, though. Because then I, I, uh, I uh, brought the Jambayas with me this morning, but I talked about having driven here this morning and uh, listened to the uh, last track of a new CD I have of uh, the Messiah. And uh, coming over the hill and listening to the Hallelujah Chorus picks up your heart. So I said, and so does we shall overcome pick up my heart. I said, everybody here has something that picks up their heart. What if we each brought the one track off the one CD that picks up our heart? And we sat for a while, maybe we got up at four in the morning and started to sit and then play this person's one track and that, and that person's one track. What is bespoke is John Lennon's Imagine. What is also bespoke, Dee, what did you say? Um, the Valdi Sabat Mata. Um, uh, who said something? Okay. Okay. Everybody, so Edie will bring that. So now we're back here. You know, Edie's music is going to be during 9 to 11 in the morning. But now, starting earlier and earlier, we're going to be playing CDs and sitting. Then I thought, well, people could, uh, well, I just called over to Evan to say, can we have this sleepover? But I, it's a mistake. Can we have a vigil? Can we have, can we have a vigil at which people bring sleeping bags should they get tired? Because the other possibility is we'll stay up all night. And, um, and sit and walk and have it fairly quiet all night so that people, you know, could save from 11 to 3, people could sleep if they wanted to. So one of the things, so that whole, and it, so you like that idea? So then as I sat, I thought we could each go to Safeway and get one of those vigil candles and bring a vigil candle with us so that each person could, in their turn, come up and light a vigil candle and it'll burn all night. You know, those big $1 vigil candles, okay? Then I thought, well, hmm? Like the one behind me? Like the one behind me, yeah. And the potluck? The potluck breakfast. Oh. Potluck breakfast. Then I thought, well, uh, <laughs> depending on how many people come, I'll ask you to bring uh, something. Um, an artifact from your life, something meaningful that you want to put on this altar and tell everybody why you brought it. Mm -hmm. uh, if it were uh, two weeks from now, I would bring you this from uh, Doctors Without Borders, which I got my mail yesterday. I'll tell you what it is right away. Um, but um, so it's taking up the whole night. So it's, a, it's definitely not a sleepover, it's a vigil. So now I need to write to the program committee. So I need to tell them an approximate number of people who really think they'll really come. So it's uh, two weeks from today, backing up to Tuesday night. It's the 18th coming on the 19th. Did we have an appointment that morning? Okay, I had an appointment with somebody that morning that I have to change at seven, but okay. So 18th going on 19th, who is coming? Who is counting? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, 
15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. That's enough. You have almost, I mean, obviously if something happened, you can't come, but 23 people, and we'll announce it next week. Okay, if the program committee. Of course, we could always say if they don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> We can go have a vigil outside the program committee. <laughs> 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 Good thing we shall overcome. That we're going to be here. No, but I mean, if they, if here, probably be a little bit more problem about doing it up there. It's easier to heat this. Um, we don't have to go out to the toilets. This is better. This is good. That's a good idea, Aaron, but I think we're here. Okay, so you like that idea? Yeah. I'll tell you one more reason why I like it is that every time I have these discussions with Evan, he says, you keep trying to make this into a community rather than into a Dharma center. I said, that's right. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. I think the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha. Um, okay. Now let's see what I was going to do. And why was I going to read this poem about religion? I've confused myself. I had all these things that I was going to do. Just a minute, I have to figure it out. Because what I was going to talk about of course, we're now all in a good mood, so uh, including me. It's a, a, <laughs> I really thought of this last night when I was driving home in a gridlock traffic, and I was thinking it is so hard to sustain a good heart in a gridlock traffic that how can you sustain a good heart in the world? Seriously, you know, we all, I look at myself and I realize that I am one second away from really getting annoyed uh, in a gridlock traffic. And it's a totally groundless annoyance. I mean, obviously, the bridge to Richmond is in trouble, so uh, that we shouldn't be driving through a pothole. I mean, God forbid something happened to someone, so there has to be one lane and we'll go slower. But um, I realized, and a couple of other people were here earlier this morning, we talked about it, how uh, easy it is to overcome the natural goodwill of the body. You know, we, we really, when we're comfortable, it's so easy to feel the lovingness of the heart. And then you hear things like the nature of mind is brilliant and pure, reflecting out from its natural base of equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. I love to say that, you know, that I feel like it's true. And then I sit in the middle of the traffic, and I get absolutely irritable about it. And I get irritable about the fact that everyone is one person in the car, including me, you know, if I think about it. And then I realize, well, I couldn't be with somebody else, but okay, but there I am. Mm. It's hard to keep the mind comfortable. And we talked this morning about, in the early class, about uh, somebody said, finally, did you remember that patience is one of the paramitas? And I said, I did, you know, and everybody here knows that I've been very interested in the parameters and teaching about them. And um, the thing about the, the antidote to 
running out of, of feeling as if one has run out of patience is cheering up the mind in some way. But finding it difficult to cheer up the mind, if I turn on the radio, you hear the news. That's not <laughs> cheerful. Uh, what to do? It's dark. Uh, finally, what I did is, uh, and really that's what reminded me to play the Hallelujah Chorus on my way here this morning to play We Shall Overcome, that one of the things that really picks up my mind, cheers it up, is how inventive people are. You know, that we that that human beings keep figuring out interesting things to do. Like they figure out how to write music. That's a really an amazing thing to do. We haven't figured out how to speak a universal language of peace, but we figured out how to speak a universal language of music. Everybody in the world can sit down and read the same piece of music in in the given the regular scales of music. People who spoke a hundred different languages from a hundred different countries, you could sit down in an orchestra, ready, set, go, and follow the conductor and play. And in some way, maybe it's because they're not talking a language that uh, it's okay. So I began to think anyway about when, my, when I get cheered up, my mood is better. It's as if... Um, you begin to see clearly again. <coughs> you don't have to actually see something good. You just begin to have the, the faith sustained. It's the same news on the radio before or after I'm cheered up, but it's more sustainable in a cheered up mind. I think what happens is uh, it's something like if you're looking through binoculars and uh, they, they, uh, your hand wobbles, and they're suddenly out of focus, and you, you, you don't see clearly. And if you fix it, you see clearly. You remember what you absolutely know is true. If not, out of your own heart's experience, not because someone else tells you that the nature of the human heart is. You know the nature of your own heart. I'll read you a poem. I had it on the top of my list, so I'll read it to you and figure out why I was going to read it to you. Um, I read it at this last retreat, and uh, sometimes when I read something that touches people, I can tell how many people it has touched because I get that many notes on the bulletin board that say, could you leave a copy, could you get me a copy of that poem? Um, I particularly thought last night about, uh, about bringing this poem because uh, it's, a it's a poem about religion. And I've been thinking a lot this week about the difference between, uh, or is there a difference between religion and spiritual practice? Do we think about them differently? What's our notions about that? Um, the local newspapers have certainly been uh, full of a local young man, a Marin County young man, who, because of his interest in Islam, presumably in his devotion to it, I've forgotten his name, White, uh, uh, Walker, Walker, found himself in Afghanistan training to fight as a Taliban. And you think, is that really, how did that religious conviction happen? Or um, I've just finished. Uh, watching a video that uh, Miriam, I saw Miriam come in, there you are. 
gave me last week, of um, children in uh, Northern Ireland uh, talking about the, the Troubles, which is how they talk about the tremendous warfare and grief that's happened between Protestants and Catholics over these last decades. Young children, teenage children, teenage children in Northern Ireland, teenage children in, um, in America, in uh, poor communities where, there are, where it's not safe to be in the streets. Teenage children in uh, uh, West Bank communities and uh, teenage Israelis talking about the troubles. And uh, it's a very touching to, to see this. The um, filmmaker has uh, taken clips of all of them talking, and everybody's mystified by it. You know, young people, really mystified by why would people want to do this? You know, why are they doing it? They're this, they are not yet. They are still surprised that people might want to shoot each other or bomb each other or kill each other. Uh, in spite of the fact that they're living in the middle of this, traumatized really by, by warfare in front of them. Everybody has seen people die. It's hard to watch the video because it has scenes in it that's you know, real news clips really of real people dead. It's not, it's not uh, made up. Um, they've really seen that. So they're really traumatized by it. But they keep saying, you know, if I were, one girl said, you know, if I were the, like the prime, one boy said, if I were the prime minister, what I would do, or so a girl said, you know, what I would do if I was in charge was, you know, they still have a hope that this is a doable thing. I was thinking about when does it happen that we start to be forlorn? Does it is it necessarily so that we have to become forlorn? What sustains our hope? What role does religion have in it, or not have it? Does it hold up the hope? Does it sustain the hope? Does it support the hope? Is a religious practice? Um, I tend to think. Of, I hope I think of my all of my religious practices as my way of connecting with my sense that there is a faith that human beings can do otherwise, that, it, that they aren't divisive. Are they divisive? I've been thinking about that. So I'm putting these all out. I don't have the answer to it. I want you to think about it with me, and maybe we'll talk to each other. This is a poem called The Little Duck. It was published in The New Yorker in 1947. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding in the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of a duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There is a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large 
the ocean is. And neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. The people of the Middle Ages were more like this duck than we are. They took life as it presented itself and rounded up in spires of Gothic. They crossed few oceans, but they floated on the sea of time. And a cat is more like this duck than we are. We can radio to the moon and get back a pip for an answer, but a cat can make a hearthrug a haven in the infinite or launch four kittens into life in a cracker box by the furnace, purring with pride because she's tuned in on cosmic waves. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. <laughs> See? People, why, so why is that a good poem? Why is that a good poem? Is your favorite line, as mine is, he reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. I, think, I, I love that line. I think it's the whole instruction for mindfulness practice. Repose in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. There isn't another time but now. There isn't another place. There isn't another anything. There's only now and the response to it and the, and the notion that we could repose in it. I have one of my favorite lines from Ajahn Sumedho who came and taught here last spring, a retreat for the teachers here. Ajahn Sumedho trained in, uh, with Ajahn Chah in the Thai forest tradition, was there a few years before our friend Jack Cornfield was. Jack met Ajahn Sumedho there uh, when he first arrived at Ajahn Chah's. <coughs> Ajahn Sumedho's a little bit, uh, maybe 10 years older, than this, actually even a couple of years older than I am, I think. And very wise and very wonderful. And um, he taught for uh, the week retreat that we had here. It was wonderful. And um, he had one particular sentence that I just loved about his own discipline and practice when things are difficult or challenging. He said, I say to myself, it's like this. That was it. That's the transmission. It's like this. You know, it's like everything. It's like this. This is it. You have to fight with it. You have to struggle with it. You have the, you, you respond. We have the next moment and we're going to respond something. But to make a space in the heart, repose in the immediate as if it were the infinite, which it is. That's the best line. Just can do this moment now. Can't worry about two weeks from Thursday. Or we can think about it and hope that what I do now, if there's a three weeks from Thursday, it will certainly be a part of the karma of three weeks from Thursday. But this is the only moment that's ever happening. So you like that? I did too.
I was thinking about, again, about religion and religious faith. I like that line about that's religion, the duck has it. Sort of takes all the steam out of doctrinaire ideas, <clears throat> and such as my religion, your religion, this religion, that religion. I'm always tremendously wary of, uh, well, not tremendously wary, maybe that's overstating it, but uh, I know that I, I am formulating the answer to the question without even having heard the substance of the question, when the question begins, Buddhists believe that, don't Buddhists believe that, or doesn't X believe that, or uh, of course Jews believe this, or Christians believe this, everybody believes everything. In, really, in every one of the great spiritual traditions that I know about, it's a huge, there's a there's millennia of discussion about doctrine. So <clears throat> I'm very, uh, I have a very, uh, at this point, quite polished answer to uh, the because it's, I've done it so many times, to people saying to me about what I believe. First of all, what I believe is not such a hard question. It, the question that the way it's usually couched is surely you don't believe da 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 da, which is really like two steps lower than what do you believe because you have to first fight your way back if you want to if you're interested in fighting to a ground level surely you don't believe that the Buddha was born from his mother's armpit or you know which is actually you know it's, it's questionable she rested against a tree and the Buddha just stepped out well but you know oh. Uh, what I do is, for all of those questions, it's, it's, it's worked out wonderfully well. All the questions about belief, I, I answer, and I don't use the verb believe. And I, I say them this way, I say, it has been my experience that, da 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 da, -da whatever I want to say. Uh, I could even say, it has been my experience that the telling and the hearing of stories about the life of the Buddha inspire me tremendously. That's true. Doesn't have to say that they're true or they're not true or they inspire me. Uh, I think there's a way. Even that story about that the Buddha stood up, took seven steps, and said, "This is my last life." And say, okay, I, I, that's a very inspiring story about the possibility of so firmly intuiting the end of suffering that the mind never wavers from it. I am not in that place. But a story that says, you know, that's a place, reminds me that maybe it's a place I could be in. I don't have to worry about whether the story is mythical or not mythical. I began to think about, is it faith in something? So here's a piece of my answer because I think to myself, uh, I am inspired. Maybe you are also. Maybe I'll tell this story and then maybe you can think of one you'll tell to the person next to you. The people on that um, videotape, those young children who said, I would do it differently, they're pretty young. This is a, uh, an email forwarded to me to my, from my friend Sheila, whose son Ezra has graduated from college. His degree uh, um, is in international peace studies. He works on things like international um, 
reconciliation and uh, his teachers are great teachers and he's currently living in Jerusalem where he has gone specifically to work on reconciliation programs between um, Palestinians and Israelis. Um, so I'll read you a piece of his email. Uh, he's writing and talking about uh, how happy he is to be there. It's a hard place to be now. He says, it's wonderful to spend the Sabbath in Jerusalem. He says, I have good news from the world of the, un from the from, I have good news from the world of the employed. The, uh, this is probably only because he's writing to his mother and a few other people. I have good news from the world of the employed. The folks that make the decisions at the Palestine-Israel Palestine Journal finally offered me a paid job. So now 20 to 25 hours of my week are going to be devoted to being the new promotion manager at the Palestine-Israel Journal. I'm going to be the third Jew in a staff of three Jew and three Arabs working together to publish an academic journal attempting to analyze the conflict of this country in a multi-partial way. It's going to be an enormous challenge when he goes on about that. So along with my other 20-hour job working for uh, World Habonim, which are the builders, and teaching Israeli folk dancing on the side, my work week is finally looking solid. Also, now onto my free time. That's already more than 40 hours a week. Onto my free time. This week I was back at the Jahalin Bedouin village. After He's teaching English to Bedouin children. After four weeks, I think I have realized that English teaching is not my forte. <laughs> However, that is what the Jahalin wants. I am continuing to try. But this week I was a little more clever, and I brought with me a Frisbee. That was a clutch idea. Perhaps Bedouin boys aren't so into extra studying on Friday mornings during Ramadan on their only day off from school. I can understand that. Why do they want to spend two hours with some guy they've never met who doesn't speak a word of their language? So just as Imam Musa and Ayub's attention span had hit the point of no return, I busted out a Hampshire College Red Scare Frisbee and started throwing with them. They caught on quick and I started teaching them simple Frisbee words like catch, throw, drop, and run. Every time Imam caught the frisbee, he would shout, good catch, with a big grin on his face. <laughs> we didn't have enough space or enough players to start an ultimate game, but by the end of an hour, I was showing them forehand, backhand, and hammer throws. You wouldn't believe how fast these seven and eight-year-old kids were catching on. We were playing catch over the roofs of their tin shacks. And every time I made a nice grab, I would say to the, they made a nice grab, I would say to them, mumtaz, which means excellent. So now I have an activity to look forward to. My dream of starting an Arab-Jewish ultimate Frisbee league may be starting with the Jahalim kids. So there are people in the world who are having a good idea and are out on the front lines and are not afraid uh, or not too afraid to stay there and do it. This lifts me up. Does this lift you up? Take a breath. Think of, if you were to answer the question, and another thing that lifts me up is,
Got something? Everybody? Turn to the person next to you. In one minute, you tell them, and then in the next minute, they'll tell you. I'll ring the bell after a minute. Ready, sit, go. If you're alone, join two people. Just make sure to change people. Make sure to give the other person a chance. Thereby confirming for me. Are you sure you know the name of the person that you've just been sharing with? So I put... <coughs> Ha, ha, ha.
So we could do this again, you know. <laughs> On the sleepover. <laughs> On the vigil. <laughs> So I would like to, uh, I'd like to invite you. No, we'll talk again. I really, I had another question for us to talk about. This so validates my sense that we really need to talk to each other. I mean, we really need to talk to each other, not me. The part of it is we come here and we know we are like-minded people, but when we talk to each other, we really know that we are like-minded people. And it's very comforting. One of the things that I, I, um, I have had really as one of the watchwords of my faith, so to speak, I think it is, for many years, I, I, I remember I met, um, it's, a, it's a long story, it's a, the abbreviated version. So I met a man that I hadn't seen in many years, but with whom I used to be quite close at a conference in another city. And I met his companion at that time, and he introduced him. And she had been working very hard for a cause in Nicaragua that was not turning out in a way that anybody felt comfortable with. And I said, um, how, do you, uh, how do you not get completely demoralized? And without a hesitation, she said, I talked to my friends. Mm -hmm. And I just so got that about bottom line. When you need one other person in the world who says, I feel as you do, that there is an alternative, that peace is possible, that the end of suffering is a possibility. I want us to talk some more. I think that's the bottom line thing. You know, when we get together at Buddhist conferences, talk about Tibetans and Zen people and Theravadas and what are we, and are we really Theravada Buddhists, and what do we really believe? Everybody believes that there, that there is suffering and a possibility of the end of suffering. And I want them to just say a word about that, and maybe we'll come to yet speak between us again today, which I'd love, because look how excited we get. <laughs> uh, because I wanted to tell you about this uh, bracelet. I wanted to give you an update about, uh, remember two weeks ago, uh, I had gotten a letter from um, Teachers and Writers Collaborative in New York. Remember that? Uh, where is their letter telling me thank you? Anyway, Teachers and Writers Collaborative in New York uh, with the project of teaching uh, in uh, fifth grade, poetry writing to fifth graders at PS something in New York. Um, PS 116 in Manhattan, fifth grade class, teaching them poetry. Um, as a way of learning nonviolence and uh, people exploring through meditation. These are fifth graders in a public school in the middle of Manhattan who come in the morning and meditate for some minutes and talk about the violence that they've seen in their lives, talk about how frightened they are, and talk about, we, here are some of their, um, if you weren't here, we need to know, these are children writing, fifth graders, my granddaughters are so they're, they're 10. We need to know violence when we see it. We need to know what to do. It may sound silly, but I don't think many of us knew much about what violence is. I didn't know teasing was a form of violence. 
we really need to, we, we are learning what we really need to know for our lives, not just for school. Um, where's the one that I like? I learned a lot of things I did were violent, so I stopped doing most of them. I know if your family members are not nice to you, you might have scars. So I'm treating my little brother much better. <laughs> I, I, I mean, when you're 10, you don't think about going out and ending world hunger. But if you, taught, you treated your younger brother nicer, you would go out and end world hunger when you got to be Ezra's age. And you'd be out teaching Frisbee to Jaleen Bedouins. So on that day, in addition to all our baskets for Spirit Rock, for me, for whatever, I passed around the basket here, and we sent $108. Uh, we had a hundred, I had an idea, let's collect a hundred and send it to them. They were asking for donations. And Lynn said 108, because that's how many beads on a mala. So we sent $108. Now, yesterday in the mail, I uh, got a letter, for, and I had the idea at the time, Coming up on this gift season, everybody's doing gifts. I thought it would be great if we did a gift every week as a group, never mind the amount, that we communally give a gift. I signed that thing to the Seamless Monument Project, the Wednesday morning class at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. It's not from me, it's from us. Yesterday I got two letters from Médecins uh, Frontières, the Med Doctors Without Borders who are uh, medical workers and who go all over the world, do not, don't settle down. They are doctors without borders. They go all over the world where they are needed to provide medical aid in very desperate circumstances. The, um, this is a bracelet that they use to measure degree of malnutrition. Put it on the upper arm of a person. If it's in the green, or the lower arm, if it's in the green, it means they have enough to eat, that they're healthy enough. If they're in the yellow, it's in a questionable zone. If they're in the orange, they're in a very much more difficult place. If they're in the red zone, which you'll notice is very large, they're starving to death. And they require very special treatment because you can't just give people suddenly food because they'll die. You have to give them measured amounts of food with supplements over periods of time, hydrating the body, doing all kinds of things for them to reestablish their health so that they can manage to eat. And I got an envelope to send them uh, a present. So I would like to send it around and have you put something in it. It doesn't matter what you put in it, but if it'll come around in the next 15 minutes, do you like that idea that we'll give a present every day through this gift season? I mean, I know that you are getting every day something in the mail that says give a present to this or this or this. So, so we could do it together. I get a lot of them every day and I brought this one just because I thought about, uh, I thought it was a very good thing that they sent me this. Because if I put this here, I can remember what I need and what I don't need. For however long it lasts, it's just a paper bracelet. But I might remember the excesses in my life, how I have way too much to eat, uh, in what ways I could be more thoughtful about it. Um, when I was in Barry, uh, I used to sit there in the fall, and there was always Oxfam Day. And on that day, if you signed up and said, I will fast tomorrow, uh, 
actually you didn't have to say who you were you just put a check to say I will be fasting tomorrow and then they cooked that much less at the meditation center so if there were 100 people meditating and they got 50 people put checks on the black on the on the sign up then they would cook for 50 people and they would multiply 50 times 9 which is the number of dollars it takes to feed everybody every day and give it to Oxfam so it's you know, once a year everybody gets to put a check and you can eat if you want to Oxfam Oxfam is one of is one of those uh, international organizations Any, no no nobody fasts they, they give donations you can give a donation to Oxfam this was IMS the Insight Meditation Society giving a donation to Oxfam in the name of the meditators so this is in the name of the Wednesday morning class and it's anyway Ramadan so I thought you know it would be easy Please find out. Well, I mean, please find out. Bring it. Also, if you have such a cause, anybody bring their bring a cause. Yeah, Erin. You know what? That's another idea. Yeah, yeah, Lisa. No, go ahead. I was going to say our web. Do you know we have a a, a page, um, an email for this class? I forgot how to access it. When's it's Yahoo. That's, that's such a foreign language to me, but I, I'll, I'll master it by next week. It's an e-group through Yahoo that says Wednesday Sangha. Yeah, but Aaron said I could log on and talk to yeah. you. Right, right. Now that—that's uh, what I was going to say. Let's all put Lisa. What?
You know, I'm just actually thinking cognizant of the time and the fact that I want to sit with Susan, that we need to continue this discussion as well, because in in addition to the information of who specifically could we help, what I I so tune into when I listen to, when I feel my own responses to these various organizations and, and errands and yours, like you said, I walked by and I got incredibly turned on. And I thought to myself, I wonder if that's because Lisa's work is working with people with bodies and mobility will be important to her. You know, that who knows why, but for each for each of us, there's somehow a Dharma gate, they're called, a, a way in which we connect in a certain way and to discover what, not the thing to do, but what's the way in which I am moved to do because in the end we feel comfortable, we feel better when we suddenly do that. Um, It's like finding exactly the right avenue for our inherent, I believe, impulse to generosity to manifest itself, you know, that, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm very glad that we do all this stuff communally, and maybe through the end of the year we'll do things communally, but, but uh, I love the idea that each of us explore what is it that particularly speaks to my heart, you know, it'd be wonderful if we start by putting it on that email webpage so that everybody sees what, what really speaks what what turns everybody on. But imagine, you think about somebody gets mobility. You know, I, I do Seva every year because I'm so impressed with the number of cataract operations that can happen for very little amounts of money. Um, well, here's maybe the last thing to say about this. We're going to, I had, we're going to talk about Dukkha, and, but uh, this is, I'll talk about Dukkha next week, maybe. Um, one of the things that we do in my family in this gift-giving season is uh, children get one Hanukkah gift, and they do get, uh, they get it from their grandparents. What their parents do at home, 
they do whatever they do. Uh, from their grandparents, each of my grandchildren gets a present. And they get a present that they'll, they'll be immediately glad to have. It'll be like a present present. Uh, and we have one, we, we get together on the first night and uh, light the first candle together. And all of the adults do not give each other presents. We give everybody a present. And we give everybody who's more than 18 years old a certificate that says, in honor of you, we have donated to this or that or the other thing. And they're all different things. So that the children don't get to see what they got until after dinner and the adults get to see that before. But everybody sits there. So everybody gets to read to the group what I got is uh, a present that means that five people are going to get cataract operations in Nepal. And it's really important because at the high altitude, the sun's rays cause a lot more blindness and the roads are very dangerous. So it'll keep people from having accidents. And I got a share of a flock of chickens that are going to go somewhere. Heifer International is one of those things that I do. And I got something from Maitsan. The, the, the physicians in my family will get Maitsan Saint Frontier. Uh, and um, the Doctors Without uh, Borders. Uh, the musicians will get um, uh, support for a, uh, a community, a, a children's music program in, an, in a school district where there isn't enough to support the children's music company. So that it has to do something with who they are. It means I thought, but um, I, I'm really hopeful. I get I get a great pleasure out of doing this. And I'm really hopeful that my grandchildren are beginning to discover that their parents are very happy to have those presents. That that's the way we can do things to each other. So in case you're interested in a new family tradition, it's a very nice way. Uh, it's a wonderful way. I love it. Um, and uh, it's really wonderful. It's another great blessing to feel I'm in a position to do that. And nobody gives us. It's just really great. Because <laughs> like I, I really feel good about being in a position of not of being able to say, I don't need anything except, except this family and these people and these kids, which I count you among. So uh, we'll spend the night together, I hope. <laughs> Inshallah. Huh? Well, vigil together. You know, I bet if I call it a vigil and not a sleepover, it'll go right through. It's a, you know, I tried to figure it out. It's not the new moon and it's not the full moon I was calculating as we sat. I know it's not the, it, it's, it's, it's on its way. This moon will have waned. We will have passed the new moon. We'll be on the way to the full moon, but not really there. So I can't, like, do it astronomically. So we'll just have to do it that, huh? It's a vigil. Solstice preparation, re preparing for enlightenment. How about that? <laughs> and just us. It's not a community project, right? Just us. Just us. Just, just us, we who know each other, people who have been here. You know, you don't have to have been here today. You come next week. But we're not going to put it on the Spirit Rock webpage. It's just us, word of mouth, us and people who we know, okay?
Well, we're going to have to move it up, Mary, maybe to start early. <laughs> I think we'll come at about 8 o'clock the night before, and we'll stay through class the next day at 11. Like that? Yeah. And you can bring a sleeping bag if you want to lie down. Uh, you know, um, this is not, it's not going to be the, this is actually done. If, if you want to know the, the cross-reference in uh, Judaism is um, on the uh, night before uh, Shavuot, which is the uh, seven weeks after uh, seven weeks after the first day of Passover, uh, in preparation for the holiday of Shavuot, on which day you're supposed to have some revelation and become enlightened. You uh, go with your community the whole night and stay up and learn and study and learn and study. So we are just doing Shavuot here and getting ready for a revelation the next day. We'll probably make prayers about that. May we become, may I have tomorrow the best understanding of Dika Nitanata I have ever had in my whole life. There's no reason, I mean, I, my teachers taught me to make that prayer. If you sit down and say, May I have some enlightening wisdom that I have not had before? We'll do that prayer the night before. And we'll sit. So now we'll sit. And let's, let's do sit three or four minutes, if you can, for Susan. <laughs> 